True Connections is a journey within to discover that you are part of everything. Life can often feel disjointed, but you and I are actually connected to one another, to nature, to animals, and many other ways like your thoughts, intentions, dreams, even your imagination. It's my desire to bring spiritual insight to these true connections so that you can get into the flow of life, receive the things that you want without struggle, and enjoy a more constant level of happiness. I am Weston Jolly, your host. I just wanted to thank everyone for joining us again, and I wanted to introduce something very, somebody very special. Um, her name is Lori, and Lori and I met, Lori, how many years ago? Oh, at least 15. I'm, I'm going to say the same. And um, Lori uh, has a, a very wonderful perspective on our subject, and I wanted to invite her to talk just freely about the things that she's experienced and also some of the perceptions or the repetitive patterns that she's uh, seen. So, Lori, let me just uh, give the ball to you. Uh, well, good morning, Weston. I'm happy to talk about anything that you think will strike a common chord because I've been working in hospice as a volunteer for seven years. I've logged over 3,000 hours in the hospice house with individuals who are dying imminently as well as in their homes over a period of, with one woman, up to 18 months. And I've had many, many hundreds of hours of conversation as well as many hundreds of hours of sitting vigil and trying to comfort family members. And the one commonality is that no matter how much we anticipate death, no matter how much we think we prepared, when it really happens, almost no one is legitimately prepared. They're unprepared with the depth of emotion and the expansiveness of the emotion and their inability to communicate it to the person they love and the people who are anxious to help them. And I have made it my mission to try and educate people and help soothe that path because this whole death positive thing is exploding all over the place, or at least it seems to me. I'm not into talking about spirits or anything else. I'm about education and helping people adjust and see the silver lining. And see that it is growth and positive and an opportunity, which seems crazy to a lot of people. But I just finally started making connections. So when I got your email, and even when I contacted you months ago, it's like, I want to write about this. I'm not sure which way, because so many people are writing crazy stuff that's scaring people away. Yeah, I have a very close friend who's a hospice worker, um, uh-huh. and um, I work with it a lot more than other people. I mean, proportionally, you know, sure, way a lot more than other people, but still not in the sense that I'm dealing with it literally every day. Right. But, but um, yeah, there's a lot of confusion about it, and I just have felt too compounding that this just has to be addressed. Oh, absolutely, and it has to be thrown against the wall a million times until people start to get, you know, I finally convinced a friend of mine who's been very skittish about this. I mean, people have been skeeved out for seven years that I spend so many days a week at hospice. Right. And that I'm not getting paid for it. That freaks people out, totally. Right. But I think that also changes the entire dynamic. But 
to say, okay, in our society, not 50 years ago, not 100 years ago, even 30 years ago when I had my kids, you plan every single step of your life from the, old, the time you're old enough when your mother asks you, what do you want to have for dinner? I want hot dogs. I don't want corn. We plan everything, but the one thing that every single human being has in common, we avoid at all costs. Yep. And you say, why? If you've been a control freak, I have a 93-year-old client who is the epit- a volunteer fireman for 72 years, Wes, and this guy looks like the Keebler elf. He's about five feet tall now, <laughs> and he's Irish, and he's hilarious. And I say, Eddie, you seem like the kind of guy who controlled every minute of your life. Yes, I did. I said, then don't you want to control the way you leave it? And he looked at me and goes, (laughs) did you really need to pay me $90 to come out here and tell you that? (laughs) And and it's wild to me that people will do, they spend weeks obsessing about a patio table. (laughs) Well, you know, or forget about cars and vacations and which college is my kid going to have a happy life? You know, it's going to yield a happy life. And when should I get married? And when should I have a child? And when should we retire? But nobody talks about when I die or if I go first. This is what I want you to do. Yeah. Or if you go first, this is what I plan on doing so that everybody's on the same page. And it, it just it blows my mind. And I, I just see it as the end result. The reason I'm so motivated is so much unnecessary suffering. Oh, you could have summarized that more perfectly, Lori, because... The, the, the sadness is absolutely appropriate, and it's, it is necessary. We need it to grow. We need it to get beyond what happened, because I don't believe you ever get past losing somebody that's very close to you. Sure. But you need it as a stepping stone to say, okay, how am I going to move forward? You have to be sad. You have to acknowledge what happened. But you don't have to suffer. You don't have to roll on the floor in agony tearing your hair out because there are ways to prepare. And that's that's the piece. Honestly, even the hospice nurses, and you've seen them, they are a different planet. They, yeah. These people are a different breed. And I am so grateful for every one of them, even those that are a little bit abrupt, because I I find the burnout rate is much higher than with normal medical people. But they don't have the time, and that's the big crunch, and that's that's what I do is fill in those gaps, is I can afford to sit there and say, let's just keep going over this. Oh, what's happening? What are you afraid of? How can we make this a little bit better for you, better for your kids? Who do you want to talk to? How, you know, and I don't want to waste the the recording time, but that's what really motivated me is looking at, you met Wendy 15 years ago, my best friend, she came from Maryland for the workshop you did at my center. Right. Wendy's husband died three and a half years ago from metastatic melanoma. He was sick for five years, and for five years he refused to discuss the fact that only one thing was going to happen. To the point where when he died, she didn't even know if he wanted to be married in Maryland or in Alabama where he was from. Wow. 
You say, five years. You sat next to each other on the couch night after night after night. Yeah. <laughs> with pain meds, without pain meds, with your children, without your children, how do you not acknowledge that this big strapping guy is now down to 127 pounds? Something's happening. Nobody's happy about it, but how, how do you not discuss it? Right. And it's all fear. Well, let me just finish up one second by way of background. So I am a restorative yoga teacher. I've been doing that for 18 years, predominantly with people chronically ill. So a lot of my yoga students have died over the 18 years. So I've had a lot of different shapes of experiences and opportunities to talk to people in their house, in my house, on the mat, sitting on a park bench. So I've really, it's something I've spent a lot of time thinking about. And one of the things that really stuns me. I am agnostic at best. I've spent a lot of time thinking about that over the years. And the thing that has surprised me is some of the most religious, most devout people that I've come across, both their families and the patients. It seems as though up until the 11th hour, they're very almost happy about dying because they believe they're going to a better place, whether that's pain-free or free of the pain of day-to-day living. And yet they all reach the same threshold when they realize death is imminent. If they're lucid and and have the ability to communicate that all of a sudden that safety, that security that in some cases has been pounded into them for 90 plus years, it doesn't help them. It doesn't make them feel stronger or more prepared or less afraid about what's going to happen. And as much as I've tried to explain to people that the physical act of dying is one of the easiest things in the world. You just stop breathing. <laughs> you just let go, right? <laughs> you just stop breathing. That's it. Yeah. That's it. Yeah. You're not writhing in agony. It's not like, well, if you get shot, I guess that's different. You are writhing in agony, but people in the hospice house are not in pain. And it can be the most peaceful, beautiful, passive experience, and yet people fill it with fear and anxiety. And I can't say ruining the experience. It's not something anybody wants to replicate, but we're all going to go through it. We take steps to prepare every other facet of our life so that any event is enjoyable and educational and meaningful, and yet this one experience that every human being has and every pet and every sentient being to the extent that we're involved with them And we ignore it, for the most part, out of fear. And that fear is just, it's destructive. It burns up energy. It burns up time. And in many cases, it even burns up money. People running around trying to throw money after crazy cures when it's clear that their time is running out. Instead of saying, I'm going to spend a couple of days just sitting in my backyard with my family and and giving us all some opportunity to enjoy each other one last time. And that's what I've tried to work to eradicate to the extent possible. That's incredible. Um, obviously, you have an insight that is uh, far, far-reaching than um, most of us, and yet that's exactly why I wanted to have you be a part of this forum. And I just wanted to thank you again, Lori, very much for being uh, here today with us. Oh, my pleasure. Um, the... the um, 
the attribute of peace um, is something. I'm going to share this example really quickly, and I wrote about it. But I was I was asked to facilitate a person here of uh, notoriety. He was he could be well. He's probably world known worldwide, but that's really not the point. And his daughter asked me to come um, be by his side because he'd been in hospice for eight years. Wow. And he wouldn't let go. And so she said, can you come out to the house? Her father was in a semi-comatose state and uh, participate in this process. And I said, okay. So in, in a long story short, I was facilitating um, by channeling him to her so that there uh-huh. would be some... Un- and in that space, it became very clear why he wasn't letting go. Um, his religious beliefs were... Uh, such that there was a conflict, that what the, the life that he had led or the lifestyle that he had led were in conflict to his re- religious values. And therefore, he felt, um, and it came up during my dialogue in terms of channeling with him, that uh, if he let go, that he was going to go to some deep, dark place. You know, we call it hell. And, and that's why he was holding on. And it was like, oh, wow, um, interesting, but ultimately not true. And so I was trying to help him understand from a spiritual perspective, because there's, again, no ability for us to physically speak, um, about uh, something different. And um, lo and behold, something changed within him. And you could you could see it physically. Long story short, she called me back out a couple of weeks later, said, you come, could you come back out again? Uh, my father kind of woke up and asked for the uh, angel to come back again in reference to me. Aww. And and cruelly, I'm not, that's, I won't claim that. But, <laughs> but, but the coming back, and um, I put my hand on his uh, chest, on his heart specifically, and the first time, he quite, quite literally um, had a hard time allowing that. I mean, there was some motion where he would come back and he would uh, uh, want to remove, in essence, the love that I was sending him, but that's all I was doing. And I was working with others on the other side so that this portal could be opened that ultimately he would release. He literally allowed himself to let go, and, and she called me a couple of weeks after my second visit, uh, informing me to the fact that the eight years had now come to an end and that her father had passed, and she was so delighted. And all that was taking place is... Um, creating a, like a mathematician, a little bit of a balance sign to uh, what had been the obstruction for him letting go. So instead of it being peaceful, this was uh, as hard as it could possibly be um, in terms of elongating something that didn't need to be elongated in the, in the ultimate fear. And so I'm so glad that you're talking about fear uh, and as a the basis of separation, um, and that, that, that it doesn't have to be something that we that we embrace or we elongate. <laughs> yes, I mean, you know, while you're talking, I. It's not a flashback. It's yesterday afternoon. I sat with a 93-year-old woman who seemed to be completely, she's suffering from terminal agitation, as well as a a couple of comorbidities, and there was no way to communicate with her accurately. She wouldn't make eye contact, yet she was, she positioned herself facing out of the room, away from me. I kept saying, I'm here, I'm here to keep you comfortable, I'm here to keep you company, if you want to just rest, it's okay. And she was gesticulating wildly in between indecipherable words saying, I love you, I love you, I'm sorry. And it's as if instead of a passive, I'm sorry, she's tidying up house, 
not to Marie Kondo this thing, but <laughs> she's tidying things up and trying to leave her house in order. She was yelling at somebody. I got an image of Ralph Cramden yelling at Alice, you know, <laughs> throwing her arms at the window, yelling, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I love you. And I asked the nurse, can't we give her something? to calm her down because she's not happy. This is not a peaceful release. This is not how someone should be spending the last couple of hours they have. And it hurts me to see that because by all accounts, she's 93 years old. She has a daughter who was visiting and very, very upset and grandchildren and probably greats. And instead of finding peace through her own channels, through a priest who had been in earlier the day, through her family, she was struggling. And it hurts me It hurts me to see a 93-year-old struggling in any capacity. But you say if that's all the energy she has, I hate to see it blown, writhing in bed. Yeah. There's got to be a better way. There's got to be a way for people to open the conversation before they're laying in a bed in a hospice facility. And then they know they've got 36 hours on the clock before Medicare starts getting antsy, so we better talk about this now. And I find the people who did, you would actually like this. I work with this lady named Liz who was hanging on for the the birth of her first great-grandson. Okay. She... She said her only regret is that she hadn't straightened out all the problems from her previous lives in this one. So I, of course, said, well, look at the bright side. Maybe you will next time. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> right, exactly. Well, why say this is it? And she was the most loving, kind, gentle person almost that I've ever encountered with every reason in the world to be unhappy and resentful. She was physically completely falling apart. Her daughter could barely come visit her. She literally lived her life in a club chair in her room in an assisted living facility, and yet she had gotten to a place years earlier where she decided every day she had was a gift, even if it was rainy and gray, and she would sit there and say, how fortunate am I to be able to look out this window and watch the seasons change? Wow. And I looked and said, I would kill myself if I was stuck in that chair. <laughs> how, how, how many drugs would it have to take for me to say, I'm fortunate to sit here and look out the window? But, you know, at that point, you say, whatever it is she's got, I want. Right. And it came from the fact that she, I found out in retrospect, she had had a severely disabled son who at that point was 50 years old. She had gone through so much hardship in her life that she decided this is just her life and she's going to do the best she can. And the baby was born and five days later she died. Wow. And yep. you say that that was a beautiful ending. It said that the great-grandson never got to know her, but she did what she set out to do, and there was no tearing of clothing and hysteria because she had a great life, and she said, okay, I'm done. Yeah. And it was a beautiful experience for everybody involved, the home health care people, her family, the people who volunteered, and you say... It, 
this is the way it should be. Not premature, but we should be prepared so that it, we accept it like you do if you have to have your appendix out. Okay, I got to do it. I might as well make the best of it. Uh, or kids having their tonsils out enjoy the ice cream, although I don't think they do that anymore. But I'm <laughs> dating myself. <laughs> The, Lori, the, the the comment that you made uh, is something that I have seen physically um, very repetitively as a pattern. Um, that there, and it's not always the case because it certainly is free will choice. But on certain individuals, they find themselves very, very clear that being present um, in that moment is everything. Everything else becomes unimportant. And yep. in the distractions of of pain or uh, politics or divisions within the family tree or who you've been mad with uh, all of your life in terms of never forgiven, you know, uncle so-and-so for whatever he or did, he didn't, he did or didn't do, um, all of those things can go away in this, this moment of being present. And part of what I wanted to share in this dialogue is, of course, this is a significant piece of our going forward. We don't have to wait to die to become to become present. Um, we can we can we can take that you know that that piece of our mortality and bring it forward so that we can be more present, more connected today. Right. I'd love right. to hear um, more, Lori, about um, some of your observations, just from a personal perspective. Um, anything you want to share? Well, the one thing I should have mentioned up front that really has impacted my thinking is uh, about three years ago, I went through a mentorship program to become a doula for the dying. And I chose not to focus, or I choose not to focus in my work going forward with people that are imminently dying, but closer to a terminal diagnosis, okay. because I see that's where the opportunity is. By the time somebody lands in the hospice house where I work, we have a couple of hours. At, at most, the average is 36 hours. So you don't really have an opportunity to affect change or really do very much of constructive growth. But from the time of diagnosis, it can be weeks, it can be years. And learning to live alongside peaceably with a chronic or an end-stage illness, um, learning to live peaceably alongside uh, a child's debilitating scenario or a spouse or even a good friend and say, we are not going to make this your identity. We're going to be respectful and honor what's happening, and we're going to do everything we can to make sure everything goes as well as possible. But it's like driving on the Long Island Expressway. There are going to be potholes, and you have to be prepared. You have to be. You have to have a spare in your trunk, and I think you also have to have a spare in your mental trunk, so to speak. You have true. to know what's going to happen when I have a bunch of autoimmune diseases and I get really nasty flare-ups, and I know when I start to feel things falling apart that I have to slow down. And I have to sort of hole up in the house or sit on a chair in the backyard if it's nice enough or just hang out on the couch with the dogs and ride it out. Because if I push through it, it just backfires. It right. gets worse and worse. Now, it's taken me 14 years to acquire that wisdom. <laughs> <laughs> well, come, right. come, come back. You said, and you laid it down so clearly, um, you said the opportunity. What opportunity are you referencing? 
Well, it's an opportunity to say, okay, I'm stuck in the house for a couple of days. We have that benefit on the East Coast of having snowstorms. Sure. You know, knowing I'm not going to change my drawers out until I'm locked in the house for two days, but now I have something to do that'll make me feel better instead of waiting for the plows to come. If I know I can't get out of the house because I'm not feeling well, I can take it as an opportunity to do reading that I haven't done otherwise, to return phone calls I haven't returned otherwise, or to just be because I I know when I run low, I can't give to anybody else. Is this true as well, Lori, with um, those that you're servicing, meaning that you're helping them in an opportunity to understand something? Oh, absolutely. And we'll say, you know what, if the sun is shining and you feel good, by all means, get out there. Right. Call me. I'll take you out to lunch. We'll go get your hair cut. I'll take you to go birthday shopping for cards or whatever you need, but not to the point of exhaustion. It's it's self-respect, and it's respecting the process. The same way parents know to put kids down for naps. Yes. Oh, they're getting cranky. Time to lock them in the crib. <laughs> we have to lock ourselves in cribs. And it's taken me a long time and a lot of a lot of flare-ups and a lot of disappointment at first in myself saying, why can't, I, why can't I train myself not to have this happen? Like I train myself for, you know, physical events and everything else. You can't. I can't control it any more than I can control anything else. And so when I start to be aware that something's getting haywire, I slow down. And that's part of what I try to work with my families is saying, look, Obviously, we're all going to die. That doesn't help anybody. Throwing that on the table is not constructive. But saying you have six months, I'm not a big believer in bucket lists. I think think bucket lists go on forever. I'm a big believer in saying today's a beautiful day and I feel good. What can I do that's going to make me feel even better or maybe help somebody else? God, what a beautiful day. Or have me have a good time with somebody else because I might not have another chance like this. Yes. Oh, yes. Right, and I don't walk around saying, oh, I'm going to walk out in the street and be hit by a car. I really don't believe that, and I hope it's not the case. Right. But you never know, and we've seen... We've seen such terrible things going on in the world overall, and I know this is not a political conversation, but the stress levels overall take such a physical toll, certainly on me, on everybody I'm surrounded with. I don't like to turn on the news anymore. I try to avoid looking at papers. I try to avoid negativity that is just being hurled at us constantly. So you say, you know, if it's a pretty day and I have an extra 20 minutes, I am going to call a friend and say, I'm going to pick up Starbucks. Let's just sit on your front stoop for a little while. You know, it, it's that, Lori, that is the, the whole point, that um, uh, as a world, and I say world, not just our society, um, there's a lot of things in chaos, and yet we're at this wonderful time um, to give some folks attention to what we want to create. We can either get back caught up in all the chaos and all the drama of things that are unresolved. I mean, I think for a lot of us, I know for my own self, um, a lot of our world events are extremely shocking. But that's to say that, and I'm saying that from a personal perspective, that's to say I've been asleep. I, I thought things were better than they were, and yet it's not a individual or a couple individuals. It's a uh, great number oh. of people that are creating uh, the divisions that we are currently It's every day. Different. Every day you, th- you think it can't get worse, and it does. Right. And so instead of embracing that, um, 
I, I'm trying to take a point of, of our discussion. It's reapplying our energy towards really what's important. And Well, this is exactly, without cutting you off, no, this ahead. is exactly what I said to three grown sons of a woman who's exactly my age who was brought into the hospice yesterday. And they there were, there's a fourth son. He was on his way. And they kept saying, but mom really keeps saying she wants to die at home. She wants to die at home. And I, I tried to explain calmly that many, many people change once they get into the house, physically into the hospice house. It's as if they shed the the cloak of invisibility and super mom them. Right. Thank God I'm here. I don't have to pretend I'm okay anymore. And you <laughs> right, can see yeah. them. Yeah. You see them shrug off a thousand pounds of responsibility and weight because now it's on the table. Everybody knows what's happening. Right. And what I said to all three of them was, let's whether she makes it back home or not, I'm not going to dismiss it. It's not that it doesn't really matter. I'm just saying be prepared. She may well change her mind. But more importantly, having her here means even if you only spend 10 minutes each with her, it's quality time. It's quiet. It's calm. It's focused time. And I would rather see you spend 10 minutes in open exchange. You don't have to talk. You can sit here and hold her hand. Sure. And the, the buzzer isn't going from the dryer, and the dogs aren't barking, and nobody's ringing your front doorbell. And I'd rather you be here and let her know that you're here and you see her. And it's a legitimate exchange for 10 minutes than sitting vigil in the house for 18 hours, making dinner and doing the laundry and helping the kids with homework, and she becomes another part of the furniture. So that's what I see as one of the opportunities. If But you have to say, okay, I get it. I acknowledge this is happening, and I might only be alive for another couple of hours. But part of what I see as another missed opportunity is the anticipation that when this person in front of me is no longer breathing, that they're absent from my life. Yes. And that's what I think people need to sort of wrap their heads around, that because someone dies, the relationship doesn't end. It's really a great point. Um, let me interject something real quickly. I, um, you described a scenario that was right textbook out of my background. I, I grew up with a very, very close individual. Um, I, we were next-door neighbors. I knew him since I was four. And he was born with four congenital defects of the heart. He had open heart wow. eight. Um, and I was there uh, when he was uh, 21 going through his second operation. In essence, they were hoping that technology would catch up to the conditions that he had, that he would be enabled. So it was a waiting game. He's in this body that's clearly got a problem. He's called a blue baby when he was constantly blue, could never run. Wow. And so in my life with him, um, mortality was discussed a lot um, because, number it one. It was real. Yeah. It, it, we, I always knew that there would be a day that, that he may not be here any longer. And um, and yet when the time came. Um, You're never ready. I, I was as comfortable as I could possibly be that I thought I could be. And then at the same time, there was grief. There was anger. Uh, there was, I was completely caught out uh, on a limb that I was being blamed for something that had nothing to do with me. And these are parents that were, of course, blaming themselves. And they looked at me as um, a, a means to vent that. And at the time, I didn't 
necessarily have that understanding um, beyond uh, just my love and compassion for my friend. But I think it's important to dialogue about this because even in our preparation, um, there are things that will come up that will absolutely turn you sideways, and that doesn't have to be seen as anything but normal, um, that, that we don't want to push that aside. Or even talking about coming into the hospice space, what you described there, Lori, for me is you allow that person to step away from their role and right. to no longer have to carry on the mantle that I am the blah, 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 blah of the family or this is my place and, and we can step away from that and ultimately become what we always have been, very vulnerable and vulnerable in a sense that, um, good, we finally have this on the table. <laughs> I am no right. longer... Right, this no is longer, really happening, yeah, whether really, we like it or not. And, and with that, let's address that, at least let me address that, and let others, my family members, address that. And these are extremely uh, intimate and precious moments. Yes, yes. And they're emotionally charged moments, and it's hard as an outsider to come in and try to, you know, it feels like walking in on somebody when they're naked. Yeah. You're really intruding because they are naked. They don't know what to do. They don't know which way to go or what to say. On the other hand, I'm not a family member. So I have nothing vested. If I say something that upsets them, I can walk out of the room. There's no long-term grudge. Sure, sure. And I also understand some of the erratic reactions, and I don't take it personally. I don't walk out of there when somebody screams, get out of here, because it. I don't walk out shaking my head or crying because it's not my kid or my spouse. Or I understand it's out of fear and frustration. But my frustration from that is that if we were all more open about these conversations, it would be so much easier, not for everybody, because there are certain tragedies nobody ever anticipates. And, you know, if a newborn dies, there's no preparation for that, and there's no way to make it better. There's no silver lining. But when somebody 93 93 years old is dying after a long illness and you see a room crammed with children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren and friends, you say, this is sad. It's always very sad, but it's not tragic. Right. And the tragedy is more sending a 93-year-old sick person home to live alone. That, to me, is a tragedy. Sure. But saying the body has run its course and it's sad and we'll miss going out to breakfast and we'll miss our Sunday night telephone calls, but that doesn't mean that you won't still summon this person's energy and image and being in your head a million times a day for the rest of your life. And in many ways, I just had this conversation the other day. It's five years ago since my dad died. I think of him more now than I did when he was alive, and I adored him. But there isn't a situation during my life now that I can't think, oh, he would love to see this, or I wish he was here, or how he would have so enjoyed seeing whatever's going on. And you say, in that sense, if you can make other people understand that the relationship, it changes and it grows, it doesn't stop because that person is no longer breathing and sitting across the table from you. That's the coolest part, and and it's very hard to convey for someone who may have uh, a difference in philosophy or religious understanding, and I do want to be extremely respectful for all those those differences, including not having any beliefs whatsoever. But the... um, 
the relationship doesn't die. The energy, um, the, of course, our physical embodiment dies, and that's something that's very clear. But the ability to interact um, or continue to have dialogue, um, as I was sharing with you, with you a moment of my friend, uh, that relationship um, prepared me actually for my the kind of relationship that I have with my wife in terms of our friendship and then ultimately the love that I have for her that's much different than my my friendship could ever offer um right and and right. yet that that friendship that's no longer a physical friendship is still here meaning I still have dialogue with him and she, participate with him uh, and laugh with him um, based upon things that, you know, we did as, as a kid that uh, are as real today as they were umpteen years ago. And, and it's, it's really special to to just know that. Well, right. And it's, and it's something that's very hard to keep, keep in mind when you're going through really, really profound sadness, watching somebody that you care about die. Um, but that's that's what I see as I keep saying the silver lining but and there's really no benefit to going through an experience like this it's gut wrenching it's sad it's physically painful but we do grow and it does help you and in so many ways it helps at least me it's helped me be able to serve people that I never expected to serve in circumstances I never thought I'd find myself in and that makes me profoundly grateful well Lori we've got to talk about this um, because I've been dying to ask this question you set it up perfectly there's got to be a reason or many that have you drawn or even called to do what you've been doing and um, I have insight to some of that but I'd love for you to share anything that you want why, why do you do what you do uh, because it speaks to me, and it's it has been the most educational and valuable experience I think I've really ever had in my life. Next to raising my children, which I'm not one of those la-di-da moms, you know, every day was <laughs> heaven. And it's still going on 32 years later. It just doesn't stop, no matter how hard I try. <laughs> and they're beautiful kids, by the way. <laughs> Thank you. They are. And they're wonderful, and they're happy. But, you know, the my father used to say, the bigger the kids, the bigger the problems. And and I keep saying, when do I get to stop this? When do I get to retire? <laughs> but I see, I've been volunteering since I was 14, and I've spent thousands of hours of my life doing stuff that invariably I turn around and say, what the hell am I doing? I'd be, I'd be better off sitting on my couch with my dog watching trash TV. At least that would make the dog happy. <laughs> and, and you say, well, especially with volunteer work, because I've done plenty of compensated work as well, but I feel it's my obligation to give back. I do have the, the great fortune that I don't have to worry about paying my mortgage. So if I can give back, I try to. But you say for whatever reason, this being with people who are very, very sick, being with people who are actively dying, it doesn't frighten me. It doesn't put me off. It doesn't. It upsets me because sometimes they're in pain and sometimes they're anxious. And but if I am able to soothe those people where their own family members can't, and the medical community physically doesn't have the time, no matter where they are, whether you're in a hospital or a nursing home, or with a dedicated aide in your house. If I'm able to sit there and be a calm, loving presence and soothe them in any way I can, I feel like that's sort of my obligation. And I have been 
very fortunate in my life. I've had a lot of bad things happen in my life, too. But overall, I feel very grateful. And if for whatever reason I have the ability to do that, I, I feel I can't turn my, my back on it. And it's also a question of logistics. Over the thousands of hours that I donated since, well, it's almost 50 years I've been doing this, I can have such a dramatic impact on a person's life, on a family's experience in 10 minutes of conversation by assuaging their anxiety. And that 10 minutes, I could blow waiting online at the stopping, you know, at the grocery store reading the Inquirer, if it's even out there anymore. <laughs> or, or I can be staring at my phone doing nothing constructive. Or I can be welcoming someone saying, I volunteer at this place because they do the best work. And you could not have made a better choice than bringing your mom here. I can guarantee you she will not be in pain. She will not be in, she will not be afraid and she will not be alone. And that's a really rare opportunity. It is. It's um it's very special. I I think that you know this, but I I've, I've got to kind of put a encompass this as a thought because um having experiences death and also is a part of what I do, um, there are people that, like yourself, who are very, very uh, adept to it, meaning they're comfortable with it, and there's the extreme where someone literally can't be in the room, and there's yes. a lot of guilt and shame about that, um, that someone who wants to be there on behalf of their dad or their sister, um, and yet they can't do it and for whatever reasons I don't want to get into, but the the portal that you create by just being you in that kind of environment. Um, I'm speaking of certainly the person facilitating and even the family member that, quote, can't be there, is extraordinary, Lori, because um, in that in that way, you, to some degree, become a, uh, a proxy. And what I mean is exactly. you're doing something that they can't do, and with that, it, it's a priceless exchange. And I know that from the other hospice people that I have worked with where um, uh, those individuals are, like you said, they're third parties, they're new on the block, and they're taking heat, but not necessarily in the direct way of being a family member. And they're able to say things and get away with things. When I say get away, uh, the truth, that uh, otherwise the family tree wouldn't would acknowledge. I mean, where someone's got a terminal illness and someone's saying, it's not terminal. Yeah, it is. We've got 16 doctors that have said that it is, but no one wants to admit that this this mortality is in its final stages. We're not even at the beginning. We're at the very, very end of it, and we're still trying to play a game that somehow this is going to be extended through money or another diagnosis. You know, it's funny. This is exactly part of the conversation I had with these three adult sons yesterday. And one of them was so riddled with anger. I mean, you could see his shoulders were locked up, his fists were clenched, and he said, everybody's been lying to us for 13 years. And in not so many words, I said, that doesn't really matter. I want to talk about what's happening today. Good for you. <laughs> Good for you. Today. Yeah. Your mom is in an ambulance on the way here from St. Catharines. I want you to understand what's going to happen when she gets here. 
We can talk about that later. In fact, our hospice, one of the beautiful things about visiting nurse where I work, their services are extended to the family for 13 months after the patient dies. That's incredible. So if you're not ready to talk to a therapist next week or in six months, or it could be a week after the one-year anniversary, they're there for you. Wow. It doesn't matter anymore if the doctors lied, whether they did or not. I'm, they may well have lied. I mean, they're human beings. Maybe they lied. Maybe you don't want to hear what was happening. Exactly. That ship has sailed. Your mother is in an ambulance coming to hospice right now. She weighs 70 pounds. You just told me she's on enough medications to anesthetize an elephant. Right. Let me tell you the way it's going to go down the next few hours. That's all I can talk about. And by default, that's all you should be thinking about right here, right now. We have a very finite number of minutes for you to be a family in this current configuration. Let's make the most of it. Sure. Laura, I just want to thank you so much for um, your participation, and I would actually like to uh, create an open door that you'd come back and perhaps uh, talk. Anytime. Good. And, Lori, I just can't thank you enough for your time and your dedication. Well, for my own I self. miss you. Yeah, I miss you, too. <laughs> also for the, the many, many souls that may or may not get to thank you properly, and what I mean by that is uh, sometimes the, the love that, that you're creating and connecting with others may or may not be reciprocated, and I want to be at least a mouthpiece to that to say you are deeply honored in what you do. Thank you so much. That's really, that's beautiful, and I, I greatly, greatly appreciate it. Thank you. I'll You're talk to you soon. That's good. Okay, bye. Be well. For us to make true connections, we have to engage. I really want to hear your comments, so please leave a review at westonjolly.com forward slash review, or go to iTunes and give me your thoughts there. This helps our connection, and it's a tremendous help to others, too. Everything we do is designed to offer you a deeper spiritual connection within. You can also make a personal appointment with me, Weston Jolly, right now by going to westonjolly.com. Also, check out my current events, books, and other products. Also, my free newsletter. Thank you for joining me, Weston Jolly, for my podcast, True Connections.